When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 47, The Conquest of Mexico, part 11. The next two episodes are going to be fun. They cover the Spanish conquests of Honduras and Nicaragua, and this story is almost unbelievably packed of twists, turns, factions, characters, betrayals and scheming. The more I researched it, the more complex the story appeared to the point where I had to create a spreadsheet table just to keep track of what was going on and who was doing what. Hopefully, I can actually tell it in a way that's followable for you all at home. Now this, of course, is the story of the conquest and colonisation of what had been, up until that point, indigenous land. However, the indigenous people will play a pretty minor role in this story, although they will pop up and influence events every now and again. There is a lack of information of this particular part of the conquest from the indigenous perspective. This is because they did not have the large organised societies, and they didn't have a culture of writing, unlike the peoples of central Mexico and the Maya. This lack of organised states also hampered their ability to resist the Spaniards, and is the reason why they were unable to influence the course of events significantly. So this story is about Spanish conquistadors greedily fighting each other and competing for their own personal, individual interests. While Cortes was busy in Mexico, and De Alvarado was campaigning in Guatemala, others were turning their eyes towards Central America. This area was so new to the Spaniards, and largely unexplored in many places, that although the king authorised conquistadors to go out and take territory, he often did not define the exact limits of that territory, because, well, they didn't know what was there. We've seen this before, and seen the problems it causes as people rush to push their boundaries out as far as possible by simply occupying land. You will remember that there was already a colony in the far south of Central America, the one that had been largely created by Balboa, but was taken over by Davila. Or Davila's colony had a few years' head start on Cortes's one, and he was now in a position to start looking northwards. 
despite having more than enough to do up in Mexico. Cortes, of course, wanted this territory under his control. And there were newcomers too. A man confusingly named Gil Gonzalez Davila, no relation to the Davila we already know, and who I shall be calling Gonzalez, just to make things simple. He had already started making moves in the area. We know next to nothing about Gonzalez's life before the events of this episode. He appears to have been some kind of accountant who was sent to Hispaniola in 1508 to keep an eye on the king's finances there. Once he'd arrived, he rose steadily, if not spectacularly, and gained land and Indian slaves. At some point, he travelled to Panama, and in 1522 he set off northwards along the Pacific side of Nicaragua and Honduras. He reached the Gulf of Fonseca, which today makes up pretty much the whole of Honduras's Pacific coast. Cortes probably knew about this, and he decided that if he was going to make a case that this area should be part of his territory, he needed to act now, and this meant sending someone out to occupy the land for him. The man he chose was Olid, who had just finished his successful campaign against the Koyi man, an extended Spanish control west of Tenochtitlan. This seemed like a good choice. Olid had just proven himself able to lead campaigns independently, and he had previously performed well during the conquest of the Aztec. Cortes, however, overlooked one important fact. Olid had grown up in the house of Velázquez, the governor of Cuba, who had been Cortes's on-and-off ally, and who eventually had turned into an enemy, just as Cortes was setting off for Mexico. If you remember, he was the one who sent an army after him, and so forced Cortes to leave Tenochtitlan to fight it. I can't tell if Olid took this decision independently, or if it was arranged by Cortes. It seems like a bad move if Cortes was involved. But, as Olid needed to resupply somewhere, he ended up stopping off in Cuba on his way to Honduras. Once there, he of course met up with Velázquez, who, always looking for a way to undermine Cortes, persuaded him to undertake the Honduras expedition independently, to declare it his own, and anything he conquered his, rather than Cortes's. Olid liked this idea, and he had seen this sort of thing work in the past. In fact, Cortes had pretty much done exactly the same to Velázquez when he went to Mexico. In the end, the king had ruled in his favour, and Mexico was his, not Velázquez's. Olid set off in January 1524, and in May he was landing on the Caribbean coast, where he founded a settlement called Triunfo de la Cruz, Triumph of the Cross. He then declared this a new colony, completely independent of Cortes's jurisdiction. Leaving a few men behind to build the settlement, he slowly started moving inland to extend the territory under his control. Of course, not only did he not have permission to do this from Cortes, Cortes did not technically have permission from the King of Spain to send him there to begin with. He could plead ignorance of the facts and argue that this was part of the charter given to him. However, the facts were that the king had already authorised Gonzalez to colonise Nicaragua, and around the same time Olid was landing, 
Gonzalez was setting off from Hispaniola to do just that. The initial stages did not go smoothly for Gonzalez. As he reached Honduras, a storm began, and he ended up being forced to land where he was, rather than picking an ideal spot for his settlement, and perhaps, in the process, discovering Olid. During the storm, he had been forced to throw away some of his equipment to make his ships lighter and able to withstand the bad weather. The equipment he chose to chuck into the water was his poor horses, and so the town became known as Puerto de Caballos, Port of Horses. Gonzalez left some colonists there and set off eastwards along the coast to explore. So while this was going on, down in Panama, Davila was waiting for news from the man he had sent out to make his claim, Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba. Now if you thought it was confusing adding a Gonzalez Davila when we already have a Davila in Panama, Cordoba's name is even more confusing. We have already met a Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba, but he is not this one. The previous one was the guy who led one of the expeditions to Mexico, which predated Cortez's one. Luckily, he will not be involved in this story, so you can forget about him now. This Cordoba had presumably come over to Panama with Davila, but beyond that, we know little about him. Between the Panama colony and Honduras was the northern part of Panama, Costa Rica, and Nicaragua. So Cordoba's men were not rushing straight up to Honduras, like Olid and Gonzalez. Cordoba did, however, send a force north to explore the area and tried to stake Davila's claim there before anyone else could. Cordoba had two men by his side, who I will introduce now. Gabriel de Rojas was descended from a noble family, and he joined Davila's expedition to Panama. He quickly made a good impression, and Davila promoted him to captain. He then included him in Cordoba's Northwoods expedition as one of its highest-ranking members. Rojas was the man sent ahead with a small force to meet with Gonzalez in Honduras and assess his intentions. Once he'd found him, he was told by Gonzalez that he, Cordoba, Davila, and whoever else was with them had no rights here and that they should go. Gonzalez had royal permission, and this was a new territory. It was not part of Davila's colony. De Rojas returned to Cordoba with this message, and Cordoba chose to ignore it. Instead, he sent his second commander, Hernando de Soto, with a larger force to confront Gonzalez. Like Rojas, de Soto was a Spanish nobleman, although not a very wealthy one. Also like Rojas, he had come over with Davila to Panama and settled well into life in the colony. De Soto and Gonzalez met at a place called Toreba. Here they fought a battle and Gonzalez came out on top. He captured De Soto. Soon afterwards, Gonzalez got the news that Olid was in Honduras, so he had a second rival to deal with. Judging Olid to be the more serious threat, he decided to release De Soto, probably as a gesture of goodwill towards Cordoba and Davila, 
to keep them off his back while he marched north to deal with Olid. This, combined with the amount of colonising that needed doing further south, seems to have worked, and this is the last we'll hear from Cordoba for a while. He contented himself with Nicaragua, and around this time he founded the cities of Leon and Granada, still two of the most important cities in the country today. Olid had also got news that Gonzalez was in Honduras, and so while he stayed close to Triunfo de la Cruz, he sent an army to meet Gonzalez, and he put it under the control of Pedro de Briones. Like so many of these lesser-known conquistadors, we don't know much about Briones. In his case specifically, I can't find anything about his life outside of this story, so I can't really give him an introduction, unfortunately. When the two sides met, Briones managed to beat Gonzalez decisively and capture a full half of his men in the process. So to recap for clarity, as things are about to get more complicated. The Mexico faction of Olid is currently on top, having just beaten, through his commander Briones, the Hispaniola faction of Gonzalez in battle. Gonzalez, however, has put a halt on Davila's Panama faction, represented by Cordoba and his commanders de Soto and Rojas, by beating them in battle and they are now sticking further south for now. Now for those complications. A second Mexico faction is about to enter, because of course, Cortes wasn't going to sit around and let Olid declare independence from him. And because this isn't already confusing enough, the man he sent shared a name with another person we've already met and know fairly well. His name was Francisco de las Casas, he was no relation to the writer Bartolomeo de las Casas, and as Bartolomeo plays no part in this story, and Francisco plays no part after this story, when I refer to de las Casas for this episode, and the following one, I am talking about Francisco, Cortes's general. After that, the name de las Casas will go back to referring to Bartolomeo. Francisco had been born in Spain but had lived in Hispaniola for quite a while. In a neat connection to another of our old friends, he had married the daughter of Jeronimo de Aguila, the man who was marooned in the Yucatan. De las Casas then joined Cortes on the conquest of Tenochtitlan, and having impressed, found himself sent to Honduras. He arrived very soon after the battle between Briones and Gonzales, so soon that Briones and his men were not back in Triunfo de la Cruz. When de las Casas turned up on the horizon with his boats, Olid knew that he had to keep him offshore. He didn't have a chance of beating him with much of his army gone. He sent word to Briones to come back as quickly as possible, and then he took to his own ships. He would fight de las Casas at sea. Briones did not come back quickly, however because de las Casas had somehow learnt that he was away with the bulk of the army, and he had sent him a bribe. For Briones, it was a no-brainer. He would stay away until it was clear who was going to come out on top. If it was de las Casas, 
he would have played a part in that victory, and so he would be welcomed. If it was Olid, he could just about plausibly argue that he had been held up and that he had been loyal. He wasn't joining De Las Casas after all, so it wasn't proper treachery. The scenario of Olid winning looked unlikely though, so he would probably not have to face that situation. Not long before, Olid had been in a great position. His two rivals for Honduras, Gonzalez and Davila, were on the retreat. Within days, however, his situation had reversed. As de las Casas had turned up the most inopportune moment, fighting him at sea was the only move that he could make, and even that wasn't a great one. But then the story took an unforeseen twist. A second set of storms suddenly appeared. Earlier, Gonzalez had been forced to throw his horses overboard and land wherever he could. These new storms had an even greater effect on De Las Casas' plans. Seeing them coming, Olid went back to shore. But De Las Casas couldn't do that. His whole fleet was destroyed. Many of his men were killed at sea, and the rest, including De Las Casas himself, were washed ashore and quickly captured by Olid. So with this issue dealt with, Olid wasted no time marching inland and finishing off what remained of Gonzalez's army. He managed to capture Gonzalez as well. Somehow, with quite a lot of luck, he was back on top. He did suffer one setback though. Briones still had most of his army, and he had not expected Olid to triumph like this. He started to panic that his story of being innocently held up and being unable to get there in time to fight De Las Casas, would not be good enough for Olid. He lost his nerve, and he ran, taking much of the army with him. Briones decided that his best bet was to declare loyalty to Cortes. He would say that he never supported Olid's rebellion, and was coming back to the leader he had always wanted to follow. He decided to march north, overland, and once in Guatemala, he met up with De Alvarado and assisted him with his campaign there. Now so far, we have seen more and more Spaniards from different places and factions arriving in Honduras. The next chapter of the story, however, will see everybody leaving, temporarily. It will also see another dramatic twist in the roller coaster that is Olid's Honduras campaign. With everyone else seen off, for now, Olid finally set about building his colony up. He also treated his two prisoners remarkably well. Who knows why? Perhaps he thought it might reflect well on him when he had to make his case for keeping Honduras to the king and explaining the carnage that had taken place already. Perhaps he had some genuine feeling that Spanish leaders should be treated with a certain amount of respect, even if they were your enemies. As far as I've been able to work out, he had no previous relationship with either of his prisoners which would help explain his behaviour. Whatever the reason, the two prisoners were not properly supervised, and they were able to form an alliance, break out, and kill Olid. They took control of the colony, and it seems that De Las Casas became the senior partner of the two. He then did as he had been instructed, 
and declared the colony to be part of Cortes's governorship, before leaving to report back that the job was done. Gonzalez came with him. I'm not sure what he thought was going to happen in Mexico, but presumably de las Casas would have painted him in a good light when they told Cortes what had happened. They went overland, up through Guatemala and southern Mexico. Of course, you may remember that Briones was in Guatemala, helping de Alvarado, so presumably he'd convinced de Alvarado that he was loyal to Cortes. De las Casas didn't think so, though, and on his way up he found Briones and executed him. And so, having been on top for most of the story, the Olid faction was completely wiped out. Honduras was now empty of leaders. Olid was dead. De las Casas and González were on their way to Mexico. And Davila's conquistadors were still down in Nicaragua. The Spanish, on all sides, had spent so much time fighting each other that they had seriously neglected to build a sustainable colony for the ordinary people who had come to settle. They had also neglected to deal with the indigenous population, neither integrating them into the colony or cracking down hard on them. Instead, these indigenous people had been forced to watch these mad newcomers fight each other across their lands. They had had enough, and they started to rebel. It wasn't a unified or concerted campaign, but it made things even more difficult for the besieged settlers, who were struggling to survive among the ever-present tropical diseases and dense jungle that they had to hack a living from. The indigenous peoples had picked the perfect moment to rebel, as there was no proper leadership to contend with. Hilariously, the man de las Casas had left in charge, Juan López de Aguirre, just up and left as soon as de las Casas was out of sight. He decided to found a new city further down the coast, and he named it Trujillo, abandoning Puerto de Caballos in the process. This was not the first time Spanish people had been there. Columbus had landed in this exact spot on his fourth voyage. Aguirre told the colonists to march there, while he sailed ahead and prepared the ground. As he sailed up the coast to the spot, however, he didn't stop. He just kept going. I can't find any information on where he went, presumably back to one of the more established colonies in the Caribbean, or maybe Panama. But when the settlers arrived, they were forced to make the best of it, and build the settlement anyway. The colony was on life support, but, technically, thanks to de las Casas, it belonged to Cortes. He would need to put some effort into stabilising things, but all his rivals had been seen off. If this was the end of the story, it would have been a pretty good one, but it wasn't the end. And the second half will be just as chaotic as the first. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast. Written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelled M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at history of Latin America podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for 
the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.